Welcome to the Dakota Town Hall Podcast, a political podcast platform based in Western South Dakota. Over the coming episodes, you'll hear from candidates and the issues that affect you in the upcoming 2020 election. Welcome back to the Dakota Town Hall Podcast. It is uh, on homesliceaudio.com. Uh, you can also search Dakota Town Hall in your favorite podcast player. We are on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and all of that. Uh, today is uh, back onto the Senate side of things. Actually, you are the first Senate interview. We still haven't uh, uh, Senator Rounds has we were rescheduling with him as well. So you got to the you're in the poll position on this on this interview. Uh, it's Mr. Dan. Uh, it's oh, and I'm sorry. It's I've heard everybody say it twice. Ehlers Allers. It's Allers. That's how I've heard everybody say it. And I just want to make sure I'm on the record because I've said it wrong a couple of times. And I feel like that's always so insulting. But when you get in these rooms, you can finally fix that. Oh, it's it's completely fine. (laughs) Okay. Um, So we have a couple of different, we have about uh, 13 questions here. Everybody gets the same answers. Um, We might have some individual follow-ups. Uh, again, as a reminder, this is not uh, this is not a right or left podcast. This is a middle podcast. This is also not a vitriolic podcast. This is a political podcast for South Dakota, uh, specifically West River right now. Uh, issues and candidates to just have a half hour to an hour of their own time to talk about some issues, and and no one's going to jump down each other's throats, and and we just have these open conversations, and then people can listen to both sides and pick the one that they think resonates with them. What a what a concept. Sounds good to I me. I mean, it's just, you know, how how hard does that does that sound to everybody? Okay, so let's start in, um, you know, being a Democrat in South Dakota, obviously, is a little harder than being a Republican. That's not news to you at all, sir. Uh, what aspects of ACA or Obamacare do you think are great for this state specifically? And then what aspects, if any, would you like to see repealed? Well, I think the two biggest components that benefit South Dakota the most are the pre-existing conditions. And, uh, you know, a personal story for me there is one of my friends uh, has been a diabetic since early childhood. And because that was considered a pre-existing condition, uh, the medication and things uh, that he would have uh, dealing with diabetes weren't covered under his family insurance. And his family didn't always have the money to purchase the the insulin and the things that he needed uh, as a childhood diabetic. And here we are, you know, you know, 20 some years later, and he spent 10 years on dialysis. You know, those are the kinds of things that are far more expensive, far more costly to the healthcare system than the preventative measures of making sure that someone had insulin when they were younger. Uh, those types of things have helped uh, over, over a longer period of time keep costs lower. The more people that get taken care of for those pre-existing conditions early on uh, means uh, certainly that there's less cost on, on the backside of things. And I think that the second thing is health insurance for uh, college-age kids. You know, they can stay on their parents' insurance till age 26. That's, uh, you know, thousands of South Dakotans that may not have health insurance if that wasn't an option. And I think those are important things to keep. I do believe there are things that we need to work on. We have to be able to drive those health care costs down. Uh, one of the initial jumps uh, where, where people had seen their health insurance go up was due to the bringing on the pre-existing conditions. Um, like I said, that's leveled off over time. And uh, if we went back and we looked at how fast insurance was increasing prior to the ACA, you'd see that uh, it has actually slowed uh, that growth down. But we can do better. There are models out there, uh, things that I would like to see 
uh, possible reforms where we pay hospitals based on incidents of care, uh, where you, it's it's kind of a package deal. And if your uh, healthcare provider stays below an agreed upon cost, there's a benefit to them financially at the end. Uh, this is shown to help drive down medical costs. And in those states that have that, you see a, a lower increase in the rate of your health insurance too. Um, I'm not saying that that's the only solution. I, I'm not saying that's the one I would choose. But we have a lot of things out there that we can work with. Sure. And the difference between me and maybe some uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, elected officials is I like to sit down and bring all the players to the table. You, you can't, with something as big as healthcare, you can't just hit one area and, without it impacting uh, something down, uh, sure. down the line. So I want all the players sitting at the table. I want to hear about all the options. And if we're all working together for a common cause, which I truly believe that our healthcare system, our insurance providers, that everyone wants the best for the consumer, for the average citizen, then we're going to find something that works for everybody. And that's uh, that's the type of problem solving that I bring to the table. That's what I'd like to see happen with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it w- at this point, it is so ingrained in our healthcare system to completely rip it out would uh, leave uh, millions of Americans without health insurance. And it would also hurt every single state that has expanded Medicaid one of the things that doesn't get talked about very much is that every state that has expanded Medicaid to get more people that are under that, uh, that you know, the, in the lower income mm-hmm. uh, to have health care coverage, uh, the ACA is part of that. And, and, it, and it helps uh, f- fund those programs in those states. And without it, that health care is going to be in jeopardy across this country. So Medicaid – but. Um that expansion's a tough, I think, as a fair follow-up, it's a tough sell to South Dakotans. Possibly. It'll be interesting. I know that there is a possibility that that will become a ballot initiative. Uh, when you look at the the, the data out there, when, when you're asking the average South Dakotan uh, if they are in favor of the Affordable Care Act, more uh, are in favor of that than they are Obamacare, Obamacare, sure. Even though they're the same thing, right? It comes down to uh, marketing uh, the you know in a way that you, there's there's the fear mongering that goes on with some of this stuff, and I think when you sit down and and you really look at it and you have an honest to god discussion, there are things that are not perfect with it, but there are things that work very well. And if you talk to most of your healthcare providers, uh, they like what it's doing. So it, it's just. It's just a matter of, of fact versus fiction and, and, and political agendas. Political agendas that happen on both sides. Okay. Um, so uh, on that, let's stay in healthcare just for a little bit here. Um, how does and should Medicare fit with the future of our healthcare system for South Dakotans? So Medicare is, is, is at the federal level. Yep. Um, and that deals with our elderly uh, primarily, but... I think that uh, we have to make sure that it is uh, fully funded. And part of what we do to reduce health costs, whether it's with the ACA or otherwise, is going to have a direct impact on the sustainability of of Medicare. Okay. Um, Well, let's get to, I mean, one of the obvious elephants in the room in 2020 in any interview that we're doing on this is COVID. Um, And this is, you know, this, this question gets asked to city council reps, District reps, 
PUC guys, you know what I mean? And like everybody wants to talk about COVID, but this in this instance in your race, it is actually a question where you can have a, an opinion on how to shape anything here. I asked this question, um, you know, a little bit binary maybe, but like what, what of the things that were, what, what things should change in our response to COVID and what things are working in our response to COVID? Well, I think from a leadership standpoint, we need to have uh, a real set of guidelines. They don't have to be, uh, you know, strong mandates that, uh, you know, impose, uh, you know, from the top down. I, th- I think that there need, those guidelines need to be out there and they, leadership needs to set an example. Uh, that's where things have been missing. Uh, the leadership will start dismissing what the scientists say, what the experts are telling you, uh, you know, the medical professionals. And when you do that, it undermines uh, the, the validity of the science. So from that aspect, I think leadership just needs to do a better example and set a better example and then and, and encourage people to use best practices. Uh, and I think that as far as when it comes to your economy and how you address uh, COVID, uh, there are good common sense ways to keep things going and still keep people safe. And I, that's where um, I, I don't believe that we need to shut an entire economy down. And I know that uh, local control in this instance can be very important because what we do here in Rapid City or what we do in Sioux Falls is different than what it needs to be for Lemon, South Dakota yeah. or Flandreau, South Dakota. So we, we need to have that flexibility and policy to let people do what works best for their communities, but still uh, abide by a set of guidelines. Well, this is where it's hard. This is specifically hard for South Dakota Democrats, I think, because South Dakota Democrats are, you know, we're just and this isn't me picking on a party, but it's, you know, it's it's it at times isn't as organized as other state Democratic parties. But one of the downsides of being um, a more certainly more conservative as Democrats go than than maybe the, the actual national party, I think South Dakota Democrats get lumped into shut everything down, put a mask on everything, put a mask on the turkey before you put it in the oven. You know, like it's, it's, it's just it's hard to be in this in some of these social media headline instances harder to be a Democrat. Well, and, and I think that's the danger of labels, because once again, when you look at the, the overall country, there are Republican states that have been, you know, uh, on a little more of a lockdown and a, and a little more strict yep. than other Republicans uh, led states, just as that it's been the same with Democratic states. And even look at our leadership here in South Dakota. I mean, I think Dusty Johnson has, has done a good job of wearing a mask uh, and, and conducting himself and encouraging people to be yep. safe. Um, you know, and nobody's picking on him. Uh, he has an R behind his name. <laughs> uh, and, and, yeah. and I'm not going to fault Dusty for that. I think he he's doing things for the right reasons. And, uh, you know, I appreciate that. Uh, I wear the, I don't wear the mask for me. I wear it for the people around me. And for somebody who's been traveling around the state, uh, coming in contact with thousands and thousands of yep. people, I'm still here. I'm still healthy. And I'm not uh, I'm trying not to contribute to the overall problem. And, and I'm someone as a small business owner and a chamber president who's been on the ground level of, of COVID, you know, working with 
our businesses, with our churches, with our nonprofit organizations, and our city government to implement good policy that allows our businesses to stay successful, that is helping coordinate with our nonprofits and our churches to get people the resources they need. So if they need their groceries delivered, we're getting them delivered. Mm -hmm. You know, we're out there actively working together and organizing. We were doing this uh, even before Sioux Falls started doing some of their different mandates and changes. We were planning for what ha- what is it going to look like if we have to limit the number of people in a restaurant. Uh, you know, I went to the city and I said, can we get carry out parking spots for our bars, our coffee shops? You know, we were already working on these things. We sat down and we worked out a plan. We visited with a lot of our shop owners. We contacted as many of them as we could and said, hey, if this happens, how can we help you reach customers? How can we help you get through this? And we developed plans accordingly. Was it absolutely perfect? No, but I can tell you that we didn't have a single business in my community closed during that time frame, at least not one that I'm aware of. That's something I think, you know, communities in South Dakota, and not all communities, and obviously I wasn't in every community and I can't speak to every community, but there, I was so impressed with the communities that really got together and worked on it. Like, what are we going to do? Obviously, this is bad on a lot of different levels, but what can we do to decrease that? I was really impressed with the municipalities that I that I noticed did something this year. That was nice to see it on, you know, you miss a time on politics when tragedy would strike where, it, where everybody got to put their guns in their holsters for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and, you know, figured it out a little. It was nice to see that on a municipality level for a while. Yeah. It's like Facebook didn't exist. <laughs> well, and, and, and you're right. Businesses, in, in the absence of leadership at, at, at the higher levels, your, your businesses and your city governments stepped up. They, they really did. And it wasn't just individual cities and you know, municipalities. Uh, in our area, our community and Baltic, and Harrisburg, and T, and Brandon, we were all coordinating with Sioux Falls, too, because we didn't want to undermine each other. Sure. We wanted to make sure- Or your feeder communities into Sioux Falls. And we didn't want to be, you know, somebody to have a a, a a really loose policy that all of a sudden now you got all these people rushing to bars in Brandon, South Dakota, because we weren't all on the same page, (laughs) you know? and. I mean, we didn't want to be contributors. So, I mean, there was there was a lot of effort put into that, but also to make sure that our businesses could stay open at right. the same time. I mean, that was, as a chamber president, my goal was to make sure that every one of our businesses, knowing that they were probably going to take a hit, that we provided them with every possible resource. I, I, I filmed videos on the payroll protection program and you know the knowns and unknowns, uh, you know who to contact, which banks uh, were willing to work with sure. our businesses, just to make sure that people had the options they could. Right, you 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 provide them with all of the resources you can possibly do, and then after that, you know you follow up and you try to to help out as much as you can. Um, but you want to you want to create an environment that promotes success. Well, and I'll compliment the other side of this as well. I mean, it's I mean it's a little funnier on this story, but like you know, I'll I'll I'll, I'll tell this story to get to a question. Mid June, you know, kids are 
going crazy because they were locked up and everybody's cooped up and everybody's a little scared and oh my god and you know we've got the missouri river so everybody grew up fishing on the missouri river right and so i took my twins and we went fishing and and, and we and i won't rat out the town or anything but like They've been wearing masks and washing their hands and don't touch your face and oh my god you're gonna die and we pulled into this little fishing community of about 40 people and there's 700 you know trump flags and this is a very red town and karaoke in the bar that friday night and at first you're you i i admit with it's just it's just me you go e but everybody was pretty socially distanced and everybody was cool and nobody you know hated each other's guts and i mean it wasn't a political thing at that point i make the trump I'd make the Trump signs to give the visual, obviously, because everybody knows these towns that I'm talking about. But, um, I, you know, I, I, I tell that to lead into – and I'll ask the same question to Mike. I would ask you the same question about what's been working in South Dakota that Christy's doing and what's working in South Dakota that maybe you would edit a little. Well, I think – Or it, a lot. Well, I think at first, you know, where, when she had the state guidelines there and was coordinating um, with the communities, I, I thought that – uh, though limited, it, it was something. And I respect uh, her uh, concept at that point of local control. Because once again, like I said, what's good for a, a place like Sioux Falls or Rapid City may not be Britain, Britain's cup of tea sure. or, or Sisseton. Holman. Yeah. It, it, Ipswich. Yeah, you have to be cognizant of that. And I actually, there were some Republicans that were very critical of her on that particular uh, issue. And I said, well, she runs on local control. And they said, yes. And I said, you support local control? They said, yes. I said, so tell me what she's doing that isn't local control. Um, where we parted ways is as this moved on, uh, and, and what really undermined the efforts of a lot of our municipalities was when they just completely uh, removed all those guidelines and said it was a free-for-all. At that particular point, our city governments, our, you know, our municipalities were looking at ways to open safely. And they were really coordinating together and then just pulling those guidelines out at the last second. I know it really disrupted things for our municipal governments. Sure. And kind of left them hanging in the wind. And now you see places like Brookings that are trying to do things and you you have getting the, a lot of kickback in Brookings. I was gonna actually bring up Brookings next on this. And well and with with respect, I will say at the same time there is a there's there are um I mean most of this is is anecdotal in the forms of West River municipalities that I've seen, but in every of these, every one of these meetings, there would be at least as many people going open up with no restrictions. We need to be able to open, or I'm going to have to fire these people. Kind of stories. So, with with respect, I, I'm the, it's 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 a fair with being respectful and sensitive to the actual disease i do actually hear the side of these people who are complaining about being i mean i understand that stress right and and you know i think where when the the mask and some of the safety precautions became political uh and our leadership you know governor nome included started being a little more uh cavalier about it it certainly didn't help situations but you know, where we could have improved. And this is where I think that my experience as not only as a policymaker, but as a business owner and a chamber president would serve the people and uh, uh, our South Dakota economy well is that the, the, not just the PPP, but the entire CARES Act doesn't really address um, and, and, and understand 
small business or or middle business or large business. It, it went in there and that payroll protection program limited businesses to using 75% of that money for payroll. Now, as a small business owner, most of us, 75% of our cost is a payroll. Sure. We used uh, tax returns and, and payroll to decide how much businesses we're going to get. Why not have a program that made that, that loan slash grant proportional to the actual costs of your business? How hard would it have been to issue a grant or loan that allowed some type of sustainability? I call it a sustainability grant. It didn't have to be all the money that you were getting before, sure. but something that allowed you to stay open and 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 address exactly what you were talking about with people in those meetings saying, I'm going to have to lay people off. Because what good does it do if you're a restaurant owner and all that money you have goes to pay payroll, but you don't have customers coming in, at least not at the level you would need to keep everyone employed. So you need to be, and, and you already owe uh, maybe the farmer down the street for eggs or another vendor over here for- Hard goods or whatever. Yeah, whatever sure. you're getting in. And you can't use any of that money to pay them. But you don't have the customers coming in to pay for it either. Sure, I, I can hear that. But my counter would be, and not to, to keep giving you counters, but I, I actually, I, this is where I can admit kind of being a dummy on appropriations, but even on a state level, I think just limiting to something as general as just overhead I don't think that is that easy. I think that sounds incredibly complicated. Well, that's why you have the tax returns there, and you create it to be proportional to what they're actually doing business. Okay. That, that and that's and that's why you would do that, um, and that's what you would use to gauge whether or not they spent the money appropriately. I mean, you have their you have the data there, and and you don't have to make the forms complicated. Uh, there's a certain amount of trust that you have to put in. Um, there are always people, there were people that tried to cheat the system sure. a, as it was. So you have to, while you have to be mindful of that, you have to trust that your accountants and that your banks are going to do their due diligence people, too. People are generally good. I, uh, right. It's a real Hobbes lock right. uh, argument all of a sudden in, in, in the form of a, of a bank grant or a, or a business grant. Right. And, and, you know, the overall goal at this point is to make sure people can stay open, that our economy stays mm-hmm. strong. You know, and the second part of that is you need to be investing. You know, I, I, I don't like to talk about spending. Um, I, I would consider myself fiscally conservative. Um, being a small business owner. Boy, I wanna, you knew that follow-up was coming next, didn't you? <laughs> I, I, hadn't, I hadn't anticipated that. It's just kind of who I am. I mean, uh, you know, we've talked before. You know, sure. I, I'm camping, you know, in a tent half the time when I'm coming out here. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm fiscally, you know, uh, conservative. But, you know, you, I, I think about the spending as investing. So when we invest those dollars, what are we getting in return? And this was one of the things, and this, is a, this isn't something new. It's been done before. Why weren't we investing in infrastructure? We've got a country with an aging infrastructure, uh, whether it be roads and bridges or utility infrastructure sure. or broadband. Just tech corridors. Tech corridors. Um, these are things that there are so many of these shovel-ready projects to go. Yep. You know, uh, to bring one up specifically, we were doing an interview with a district uh, candidate out here, and he brought up a phrase I haven't heard for a long time, Heartland Express, or Heartland Expressway, is that what it is? It's supposed to run north and south yeah. from Canada yeah, yeah. to Mexico or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 
And so you have these opportunities, and these are things that uh, you know when you invest those dollars, there's going to be an economic return on them. Yeah. Because you're supporting small business, you're supporting transportation, your trucking industry, getting moving your ag products. I mean, there there are so many advantages. And those sho- you, like I said, you have all these shovel-ready projects. We have these plans, five- and ten-year plans out there. Let's bump these up. Let's get a little more aggressive. Not only would we get, uh, we'd be investing in our long-term economy, we'd also be getting people back to work that need jobs. I mean, we can get creative and make these things happen. And it's worked before. So why aren't we doing it today? And I think because politics gets involved in it too much, we were just looking at passing something that would make people happy and say, look, we did something, <laughs> but did it really help? Think of the number of small businesses that that small business owner is the only employee. They didn't qualify for the PPP. Sure. Think about all the artists out there. You have these musicians and, and entertainers across the state whose yeah. livelihoods are based on large crowd performances, birthday parties. Well, and then they all pay bartenders and food servers. Exactly. And, you know, none of them are 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 get, You know, they they weren't they didn't qualify for a lot of this either. And when that extra six hundred dollars of unemployment went out, now I've got a guy who his entire career is doing children's shows. Who's living off 145 bucks a week? How do you live off 145 bucks a week? And they're like, go get another job. But that that sounds really simple. But they're not everybody's hiring. Sure. And just you know, is it fair to ask a person to go get a job for a few more months and then leave that employer? Uh, who spent uh, invested all that money in training, and you're telling somebody to change a career that will eventually, we know will eventually will come back. Surely come back. So it's not, you know, it's not like that job's gone forever. Sure, but on the flip side of that, it's equally as frustrating from the, I'm fact, you know, I feel like I'm going to give you a bunch of right counters. I'm going to give Mike a bunch of left counters. Uh, but I, I, I've heard business owner after business owner after business owner, and not all of these guys are hard right guys be frustrated with the fact that they since the 600 a month was still happening they had people kitchen workers and you know cashier type jobs and these jobs that are generally you know um that are in ai trouble over the next 30 years uh, they couldn't get people this couldn't couldn't they had to pay way more than they were used to having to pay because of that 600. Now, I don't know. I've never had to pay anybody. I've never had to pay a kitchen cook. I have no idea how to hire a kitchen cook. So I don't, I can't speak to the validity of that. That's anecdotal, but I heard it a lot. I heard it all summer. Yeah. And, and, and I've heard that from some businesses too. Um, once again, we had a flat rate for everybody though, didn't we? Uh, we didn't have something that, you know, that, that is, that is the, the, the biggest problem here is that, is that uh, you had a rate that was the same across the country. $600 here means a lot more than it does in New York City or in Austin, Texas. And and that's why uh, when we build these uh, packages and programs, they need to make sense. We already know how, how things are here in South Dakota. We have gauges and measures. And, and maybe $600 wasn't the right number. Sure. We had the opportunity uh, in Congress, uh, well, I didn't, I, I'm not there, but I mean, there was an opportunity to do a different package. 
um, with uh, more unemployment. The other reality of this, going beyond those people, and, and they're always going to, like I said, there are always going to be a handful of people that that wasn't an incentive for them to go to, back to work. Yes. But think of the number of places where uh, people don't have access to childcare right now. Well, you're making a more of an, it's a net gain argument, which I can hear. Right. Certainly I can hear. Right. Um, let's stay, let's stay a little bit on the topic of business, but let's keep it back to the national level a bit. Do you, so you, you're, you have been an, our small business owner. Do you feel currently the national government is friendly to South Dakota small businesses or not? That's a tough question. I think there is a little too much uh, bureaucracy when it comes to like the, the small business association, my experience, uh, with the SBA wasn't very good. I know others have had a really good success. Um, you know, if I was a U.S. senator, I would spend more time going through the processes that they use to determine who gets loans and, and doesn't. But I remember being completely discour- uh, discouraged from opening a business and, tell- and telling me that it would never succeed. And I was I was around for twenty years. <laughs> the the person that opened up next to me, she I told her be ready for a long process, and she got her loan within weeks, and she lasted six months. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. I think that the you know there's always ways to improve these programs that are out there. Sure. Um, and I, I think having business experience uh, uh, and and chamber experience and policymaker experience uh, can help improve those types of programs because you have the, the understanding of policy, but you also have the practical side of it and, and understanding how it works when, he, when it gets down uh, to the ground level. So let's go to energy for a bit. It's been, a, it's been at least in the election years, it's been a goal for America to be energy independent. So what should we, what should we be doing to encourage to meet this goal? And then what non-fossil fuel-based energy sources are in that mix? Okay. Uh, Good question. You know, I know people want to be aggressive and move away from fossil fuels. I think that that is the direction that we're heading. Uh, What we have to be cognizant of as we make these policy changes is the impact to our overall economy and what it means for people and their livelihoods. We always imagine the fossil fuel companies as the bad guys and say they are the bad guys. But what about all the people that work for them? That's a, they're easy to get painted with a black hat for sure. But right. I mean, and we live in Western South Dakota here. I feel like we're neighbors to the energy industries, although it certainly impacts us good or bad when the energy industry is doing oh. well. And, and so it gets translated into not necessarily some rich dude in an office in Dallas. Right. It's, you know, the... 350 dudes who just got their job let go in Gillette. Right. Well, and, and that's exactly, the, that was exactly the point I was going to bring up. You know, over the years, we've had these uh, push for cleaner fossil fuels, uh, cleaner energy. And I spent a little time growing up as a kid in Gillette, Wyoming. And when those cleaner air policies came in, Gillette really benefited because the coal that we have out there was a low sulfur coal. Sure. It burned cleaner. Go to Virginia and West Virginia where those coal mines used to be. 
and look at what they were after we made those policy changes. They're the poverty areas. They're the welfare areas. They're, yep. the, they're the places where the economies are depressed and have not come back. So when we make these policy decisions, we need to also have a plan of what, what happens as the industry changes. And this is where I like bringing everybody and having everyone have a seat at the table. And uh, sometimes people laugh when I say that we need to include the fossil fuel companies in on this discussion. Um, but they say, well, they're not for renewable energy. I said, but what if we could convince them that it was to their benefit sure. to be involved in renewable energy? Well, and I think that's largely you know, happening now. If you look at an energy portfolio of any decent utility compared to what, what was 15 years ago, it's been... I mean, I don't I guess I don't know every one of them, but the few that I have seen, it has been incredibly diversified. Uh, the, the, I think the utilities have diversified. I'm not sure that the the uh, generation of the the generation of has. And, oh, and, I don't know. I think I would make an argument. Uh, maybe not enough. And I, and this is wading into territory. I'm certainly not an expert in. But if I look at um, if I look at a company uh, 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 like Basin Electric, for example, right, which is which would be all of the co-ops in the state of South right, Dakota, right, right. You if you look if you go back to 2000, um, I'm guessing a little on these numbers, and 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 you could see coal being such a huge part of the pie, and it right, still right, certainly right. is. But now you start to see. You know, even nuclear in a little bit, and wind and solar and and, right. and gas and and the, the urea plant up in the northeastern part of the state. You know, yes, on the utility side, and I'm thinking more of like Exxon Mobil. Okay, sure. So, so yeah, you're right, and I've watched it as a state legislator grow. Sixty eight percent of all energy produced in South Dakota today is renewable. Is that really true? Yeah. It's, Interesting. We or ourselves with electric and the WAPA stuff. Yeah, with with, with hydro, <coughs> but we don't use sixty eight percent of that renewable energy. You know, we're not. You know, sixty eight percent of our usage isn't coming from renewable, but we're producing uh, the, the energy we produce. A lot of that energy is being shipped to other places. Um, but I'm talking about bringing these fossil fuel companies to the table and saying, hey. Let's let's work together on this. I think that there's an opportunity for you to be involved, uh, that there's profit to be made in the sure. renewable energy. That's what I want to do. And some people think that that's a lofty goal, but we don't know until we try, right? And we have to include them in on the conversation. When everybody is working towards a common goal, we make progress. Um, when we don't, when we try to shove something down someone else's throat, I mean, let's go back to the ACA real quick. Sure. Democrats shoved it down Republicans' throats. What have Republicans been doing the last 12 years? Fighting the ACA. Um, I mean, had we been working with Republican colleagues across the aisle, do you think we'd be fighting over this right now? If we'd have just made a few compromises? Uh, uh, Yes, I do. You think we would? I really do right now. I, I certainly, I mean, this not to make this interview about a media guy's perspective at all, but I absolutely do. I know my experience has been that when you get buy-in from both sides, you get lasting change. I won't argue that there could have been better lasting change and a more compromised system. I just don't think um, I, I, cable news and social media is it. We're in such a teenager pre like high school. Yeah. And until that evolves and it will naturally evolve, I just, I don't, I think, I mean, that's why you see masks are the most unweaponized thing in the world. 
right now and they're holy I mean, come on, man. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like you, you can't, you, I, political signs are starting arguments in neighborhoods. Yeah. We got to get through this a little bit. And, and that's, you know, part of what I did in Pure. Uh, I worked across party lines to get these kinds of things done. But I understand, I'm willing to sit down with uh, uh, my, my colleagues and have a dinner or uh sit down and have a cup of coffee at a coffee shop and talk about these things. We're not going to agree uh, on everything. But when you look at things, when you look at uh, a good economy, a great job, affordable health care, and a good education, those aren't party issues. They're people issues. And it's just about how we get there. And that's – I found a tremendous amount of success working with uh, – uh, I don't even like to call them conservative colleagues. I hate. I get tired. <laughs> I get tired of labels. I really do. But you know, uh, well, every Democrat does in South Dakota. Though. I, I just. I mean, I get that. Yeah, I, like, I, just, I agree with you, but I, I just don't. I, I hate labeling people because it, it means it, it diminishes them in some way. But you know, being able to sit down and, and work with uh, my colleagues, we got things done. I mean. I had two bills my last year in the legislature that, that started totally uh, Democrat prime. Not a single Republican on that bill when I ended up introducing it. Could not get uh, anyone to, to, to jump on it. And one of them dealt with uh, setting up an advisory committee to improve the delivery of educational resources to children who are deaf and hard of hearing. And a lot of that was due to uh, kids uh, being integrated into the public school system and the diminishing resources of the South Dakota School for the Deaf. And that's that's legislation that has been primarily – well, it had been up until South Dakota passed it – was primarily – it was Democrat legislation in Democrat states. And it started out that way here. Sure. By the time we were done – um, while no no Republican had signed on that bill, Republicans started wanting to work and help and work with me on that bill. South Dakota became the first Republican-led legislature to pass that legislation in the nation. That's interesting. Okay, and it, it's I, you know you don't hear enough of those stories about everybody got a thing done and it wasn't a. You know, stab in the back. I mean, you never yeah. do in an election year because I know this is a year to be partisan a little bit. But these these are the things that I like to talk about because I think that we can do this. But it takes people with the right mindset and the willingness to quit pointing fingers. Well, that's a perfect segue into a topic that is, you know, is a bit of the third rail. So let's take that same kind of thought process and let's add it to Social Security. So... You know, let's let's ask it this way, because this is how I'm going to ask both of you, uh, the candidates. A common concern for Americans is if so, if uh, the contributions made to Social Security system will be there when they reach the age of retirement. What assurances can you give working people that their contributions are safe and will be in the future? So here's a that's a great question, because here's a, another area where I have a little bit of experience uh, as an appropriator and as a member of the uh, Retirement Laws Committee for the South Dakota Retirement System. Uh, I've, I've been part of ensuring that South Dakota retirement was always 100% funded. And uh, the things that I learned while on that committee, I would like to apply those principles or some of those principles to Social Security. One of the biggest problems with Social Security is that Congress saw a large pot of money sitting there, more than what we needed at the time, or they needed at the time, 
And they decided to start borrowing from it. You know, Mitch McConnell made the comment that Social Security is contributing to the national debt. He's 90% wrong. The 10% he's right is because they borrowed Social Security to pay down the national debt. And had they not done that, it wouldn't be contributing to the national debt. The only reason it does is because they owe Social Security payback. I would advocate a repayment plan uh, that would reimburse Social Security for all the money that was borrowed. We'd have to do it over time, but we should repay all that money and then never uh, borrow from that fund again. It needs to be its own fund. It needs to be left alone. And we need to put uh, mechanisms in place that ensure that it's 100% funded. And we can do that, and we can do that without cutting benefits. We can do that without, you know, increasing the tax rate on it. You know, I, I, I think that the, there, there are possibilities here to make it work. Can you also do that without affecting the age? I, I don't, and I know that's a real gotcha version. I, no, of this, no, it's a, it's a good question. I'm not a hundred percent sure. It's one of those things that you got to sit in there, you got to sit down and start running all the numbers. Right, and it's such a completely nuanced right question asked by people who I'm, you know, I can't balance my checkbook. But it's a valid point because there are a couple of factors that uh, that, that that are contributing to this. One, we live a lot longer than what the estimated a, uh, lifespan was when Social Security was created. We're also in a situation, too, where that when Social Security was created, you had six people paying into every one beneficiary. Now it's a three-to-one ratio. So you have half as many people paying in as you did before versus the, that one recipient. So there's a lot of things, but that's where you got to get in. You got to, you, first you got to figure out a way to repay that money yep. and you have to stay dedicated to that plan and repaying that money because that will help push uh, the, the, the life of it out farther. Then you start looking at the other pieces. What should the tax or the income ceiling be for social security? You need to ask that question. Is that tax ceiling too low? You know, does it, does it, and what, what do you do? What, what, how do you set it so that it in incrementally raises that ceiling uh, to uh, reflect inflation? You know, you have to look at all of those types of things. You have to look, I think, at the age. You know, what is the appropriate age? Where are people retiring currently? Um, you don't, and you don't want to impact the people that are nearing retirement now. You, you need to protect them because they, they've been made a promise, mm -hmm. and we need to keep that promise. Mm -hmm. But for those that are just starting to enter the, the workforce, um, we need to be looking at those things um, because it, it is going to impact that down the road. I told my 18-year-old twins about a year ago, two years ago maybe, when they started getting paychecks, you know, <clears throat> going through what those numbers are. And, and the 16-year-old, you know, you – for what? You know, they're just so enraged, like that the, the money is not in their pocket. I'm like, well, no, this is, you know, this is the plan. And then when you get to be this age, this is going to be here and you're going to have these things. And, and, and this, I didn't do a very good job explaining it to the 16 year old brain. That was Taco Bell 
and Mountain Dew, and you know that was Skittles. That is that that's is what it was for us too. Tangible, you know. <laughs> that's what it was like for us. Bell money, you know. Yeah. That, that big gulp. I mean, that was my big gulp. Um, okay, let's let's go into. I mean, we're on taxes. Let's stay on taxes, right? South Dakotans, as well as people across the nation, are always concerned about how much they pay in taxes. So is there any changes uh, you coming into this Senate seat? What changes would you like to see in the current tax structure? Uh, you know, the the only thing I'd like to uh, see is I would like to see some IRS reform. I think there's it's so complicated as a business owner. I mean... It, it, it was frustrating. I mean, I, I think that there's for smaller business owners, you know, there are there are less um, options out there as there are for people that are uh, larger businesses. I think that there needs to be some tax equity. Um, I'm not I'm not advocating that we raise taxes. Um, I think we got to get a hold of the system that we have first. You know, I, I'm not someone that likes to go in there and start tearing things up. I, I like to go in. I like to do my research. I like to observe what's happening and make informed decisions. Uh, I don't have all the answers. The, but the best way to get answers is to start asking really good questions and start working with the people in departments and agencies, and then talking to the people on the street that have to implement the policies that are passed to find out what's working, what's not working, how do we make it better? And, and uh, uh, the, when I was on appropriations, I was on what they called the lean subcommittee, which is uh, there and dedicated to creating better communication within government agencies and finding efficiencies in processes. Well, that, that is, that's, that's a, that's a, you get, you have to draw the short straw to get on that subcommittee. <laughs> no, I asked to be, I asked to be on it. Um, I mean, I, I'm surely it's important, but you know, that just sounds like the most driest Tuesday morning meeting in the world. It, it can be, but the, the impact of it, you know, here's a really great example of what it can do on the, on, we'll, we'll use a micro example. When I came back into the legislature in 2017, the Department of Revenue came to us and they said, we needed to change the statute for getting your uh, title back to you on your vehicle. And at that point, it was 30 days, but they weren't able to fulfill that statutory obligation. Uh, and, okay. and so we, we asked them some questions and, and then ultimately asked them how many days they needed. They said 45. So we changed the law. But... When it came time for the end of the year and we were t working with the departments on our requests for the, the upcoming fiscal year, we had money set aside to hire a consultant and we asked the Department of Revenue to engage in the lien process. And at first they were a little resistant, but they did it. And just with regards to what it did for this one single process, they were so excited when they came back to us the next year to talk about, uh, you know, what, you know their their budget and everything. Uh, they brought up this uh, bill that we passed to increase that timeline. They said we we applied lean to our to a, a variety of different things that we do within the Department of Revenue. One of them being that title, and they were able to reduce the time to get that title back to the South uh, South Dakota taxpayer down to 14 days. Oh, wow. Because the person where the process started was talking to the person at the end. At the end, sure. 
And what had happened over time is that something wasn't working for for you, so you made a change. But that change you made impacted Impact people else. two two uh, two people down the line. And what 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 lean does is it improves your processes. I used it to make myself a better legislator. I used it when I would uh, work on legislation, whether it was something I was writing and creating or it was something that a constituent came uh, to me with in order to make better legislation. It forces you to look at the big picture and the entire process and then ask you, yourself specific questions. You know, why are you doing this? What is your you know specific goal or what is the end outcome you know, type of uh, thing. And it really makes you work through it. And if you follow those types of guidelines, you create better government and leaner government. And, and, it, and it works. And that goes back to how we invest our dollars. If you've got a more efficient process, you can take that same amount of money and make it go so much farther. Let's pivot to... Well, let's just get this one going. So I, I'm going to ask this question both ways to both of you. What is guaranteed with the Second Amendment and what is not? Uh, you know, it, I mean, it's a little cut and dry way to ask it, but no, I I, I think that's a fair question. I think uh, every uh, American has the right to own a firearm. Um, one of the misconceptions that you see out there, and this might be an extreme example, but the Supreme Court has ruled on it as a limitation, is some of these militias that are out there. Uh, that that carry these uh, semi-automatic rifles and yep. stuff around and, and organize. They are not uh, they are not creations of the state, and so they're not legitimate, and they do not have the right to assemble and 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 form a militia. So there's a limit on the Second Amendment right there, uh, and that's been upheld by the Supreme Court. Uh, I, when it comes down to determining, you know, this rifle or this pistol. I don't have an answer for that. And I, no one has been able to show me um, a good reason to limit any particular uh, rifle. Do I think that we need to be carrying around assault rifles? Yeah. Um, you know, some people say they, you know, they're good for hunting. And I grew up West River. Right. I, I went hunting. Um, if it, takes, I mean, they're cool to shoot. I mean, but, yeah, they're they're fun to the deer. Yeah, I agree with you. They're they're fun to shoot. But if it takes you more than one shot, then you're not a good hunter. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's really. I, uh, put that way in a while. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's coming from someone who grew up West River here. I mean, I, you know, I I call it what it is. Um, Restrictions. I don't, I don't like. I said I don't have all the answers to to stuff like that. Um, I do think that we need to do a better job of screening people who are able to purchase guns. That there are people that are sick that um, need help that aren't aren't getting it. Uh, that that probably shouldn't have a gun. I think that there are people out there that you you know uh, family members that may be concerned about a loved one and. Um, and they sh they should have some ability to uh, protect that person, and if that means that they they need to be uh, assessed, and while they're being assessed, you know that they're creating a you know imminent danger to themselves or someone else, 
I think that there, there should be the ability for those uh, loved ones to to care for that person and make sure that they're safe. Sure. Um, but, you know, I'm not, you know, I remember Dan Lederman. He's the chair of the Republican. South Dakota Republican Party. Yeah. yeah. I, I served with him, and he called me a gun grabber. And I, I thought that was funny <laughs> because if you look at my record, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell people I got a D from the NRA. But just so all of you are aware, all the listeners out there, uh, that's better than every other Democrat in the state of South Dakota uh, that's serving in the legislature. So just keep that in mind. But if you looked at my record compared to some of the other uh, re- of my Republican legislators, people who voted the same way as I did, they have an A minus or a B plus. <laughs> so, um, you know, some of that's political and it is what it is. But there were 12 pieces that I recall of pro-gun legislation in the state legislature when I served in those six years. I supported nine of them. So, Do you remember the ones you didn't? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, the first one was a guns on campus bill. And the funny thing is, is the NRA wasn't even pushing this bill. Sure. And guns were already allowed on campus. But some of the rules were, I mean, were pretty light. And this was uh, trying to throw it all out the window. And the student body and the Board of Regents came to us, both students and administration, said, you know, we would like to be involved in this discussion since it impacts us. And we're willing to write a policy and we're willing to um, make improvements and, and, and work with our student body. And the student body was interested in, in, in being part of that. And they asked us to kill it. And I, I did. I voted against it. The next year, they brought it back. And it was agreeable to the majority of people. And I voted for it. Sure. So I voted against it initially, supported it in the end. Um, because it worked for the people that it impacted. Well, and I don't believe in this flip-flop nonsense either, too, yeah. right? Like, w- one of the things I'm big on in this podcast, I want to be a platform to be able to do so, is you're allowed to, in one year, 1999, think of one way, and then in 2006, think another, based on a variety of different reasons. You know, I mean, as a as a father of two 18-year-olds that I hope are going to be going to school here in the near future... It took them a box and a half of shells to bring down the deer we shot a few years ago. I don't want them having guns on any campuses at all. <laughs> right. Well, and like I said, it wasn't that I, you know, it wasn't whether or not you supported it. It was about the, the, the people you represent. And it was about their voice in this case. And it was their opinion that I respected. And, you know, you had to question why the, the bill that was brought the first year was brought in the first place. The next one was, uh, it was op- uh, open carry in the Capitol. And law enforcement asked us as legislators not to support it. I remember that. They said that we have undercover officers here, plainclothes officers. You don't know who they are. So what happens when they pull a gun out? How do you know whether they're the good guy or the bad guy? And some people are like, well, I know, know who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. But, you know, I respect law enforcement. My grandfather and my great grandfather were both law enforcement officers. And uh, I trust them. And uh, we had a a former uh, legislator from Rapid City here, Craig Teason, who I had served with, and uh, he wasn't in support of it either. You know, you have to trust those people that are in those positions. And that was a case where I trusted law enforcement. And I, I truly believed that the argument they made made sense. And it wasn't that I was against people carrying. It's just about safety. And in this case, uh, they made a good argument. And I wouldn't want to be the one that pulled out a gun and shot the wrong person. 
And then I think the last one, it had to do with um, getting rid of the um, concealed carry permits. And I don't remember all the language, but I remember the Secretary of State not being in favor of it. Yep. And I my, remember that. My biggest concern with this particular piece of legislation, now eventually some legislation like it passed, and I don't remember all the differences, but I, I, if I remember right, at the time this particular piece of legislation um, put reciprocity with other states at risk. And that was, you know, as a gun owner myself, as uh, knowing lots of people that uh, hunt across state lines, yeah. uh, that reciprocity is pretty important. And it just didn't seem well thought out. But nothing took anybody's gun rights away. And I think that that's the most important thing. These were, you know, whether or not they were good policy, whether or not they, in this case, like you said, whether or not it benefited the gun owner. And even after they passed, uh, you know, when Governor Nome was elected, they passed that uh, where you could just open carry and not have to have a concealed carry permit. You still have concealed carry permits. And the average gun owner knows that it's important for them to have that permit. And that if they get an enhanced permit, not only are they getting additional training, but now they can carry in the majority of the states in this country, which I think is is a benefit to those gun owners. Let's pivot to education then. Um, you know, I'll generally just kind of make this a topic, not necessarily a question. So, like, what's what's next for education? What's what's first for education? What's where's where? How we sitting just generally, and where do we need to go? Well, I think that we need to make sure that we're spreading the resources equitably, uh, not only across the state, but across the nation. Um, one of the big things for me that um, would be a priority, and, and this uh, has been an important issue for me as a state legislator, uh, but also I've experienced it a little bit as a substitute teacher, is funding for special education. When IDEA was passed nearly 40 years ago, there was a promise and a commitment of the federal government to help fund uh, this uh, new mandate. And the federal government has not lived up to its financial obligations to the states. And I would want to go in there and make sure that that happens and provide that funding. You know, when you're working with students uh, with disabilities, um, resources are very important. Mm -hmm. And the whole goal is to help these children have a fulfilling, meaningful life. And each one of them has, just as any child, has unique talents. But to be able to uh, help them fully realize those talents and those abilities, it takes a little more. It's a little more expensive. You need more people. You you need more resources. Or equipment. Or equipment. And uh, that is uh, something that's very underserved in education. And if we want people to be self-sustaining, if we don't want people on programs uh, or on so, you know, a lifetime of Social Security or disability, um, then we need to provide those opportunities on the front end. I see a lot of people with talent and abilities, but because of our limited resources and the ability to uh, culture and nurture those abilities, um, they, they come out. Uh, not fully developed in the best possible way they could be. And I I think that that is an injustice uh, to all of those children. And and since the federal government wants uh, these children in the least restrictive environment, then we need to make sure that the schools have the funding 
to uh, fulfill that obligation. So we're getting just over an hour into an hour here. So well, let's, um, we've got, I got three more I want to get through though. Sure. Um, okay. Um, again, this is a question I'm going to ask both of you um, pretty similarly. Um, are you pro-life, pro-choice? And, and then I guess maybe a bit of an explanation on. Sure, sure. Um, I w- would fall under the pro-choice category. I'm not a proponent of abortion. I do think that there are instances where women uh, should have the choice uh, to be able to control what happens with their body. Uh, sometimes it's uh, out of their control. And uh, I would hope that they would choose to have the child, um, but that's not my decision to make. Um, I well, can't... I mean that this question gets weaponized yeah. immediately, and so I don't mean it as a question that is weaponized. No, this no. It's just a double up the middle, where do you stand on it, yeah, and we no. don't have to do an hour on it. Yeah, and it, it's it's important to ask these questions. People deserve to know. They need to know. And for some people, this isn't going to be an acceptable answer. Right. And, but, you know, when it's when it comes to partial birth abortions, I oppose those. When, it, uh, when we have... Uh, sought to increase penalties in South Dakota uh, for certain abortions. I've supported those increases in penalties. So uh, it's not like I am uh, out there wanting to uh, promote abortion. Sure. Uh, I believe that we need to invest in better access to health care where you see uh, people uh, and, and higher rates of abortion are in underserved areas, uh, po- areas of poverty. I think people need to have access to the um, uh, access to contraception, access to education, access to health care. And you're right. Uh, this issue has been weaponized. You know, here's the question that I always pose. You know, um, the, the Republican Party's platform has always been pro-life. But just look at South Dakota. My opponent was in the legislature for eight years and governor for eight more. And he was powerful enough and had enough control as governor that they could have made this happen. So why didn't they make it happen? And the people of South Dakota have voted uh, the the ban down twice. So, um, you know, I, I'm not trying to be flippant about it. No, sure. But it's it's uh, you have to ask that question. If I mean they've had a supermajority for most of the time uh, uh, in the in the last twenty years. So why isn't it banned? Well, I think the bills, I mean, just speaking on a legislative level, and again, I don't want to stay on this topic for a long time, but um, as I see it, the bills that get proposed on state levels largely are not from, uh, I mean, maybe they are, maybe I just don't know enough about this, but uh, as I see them, they come from, you know, fringe legislators on either side in in that case, really. You know what I mean? Like that, that's not a caucus and, and, and thought out that's a lawsuit magnet yeah uh you could say that it's a lawsuit magnet but yet those that are more reasonable still haven't proposed that legislation sure i get that point too and and that is that is that is my point is that they talk about it but then they don't do it and i think that that's you know a little disingenuous i was i was raised catholic so you, you you know that this is an important uh part of uh, of being raised Catholic is is the pro-life. And it's a hard one for me. It's been a particularly hard issue for me because I know personally how I feel. Sure. But the law, uh, you know, and, and equity under the law and people's individual rights are also very important. 
And I, I know that this is an issue where we might disagree, you know, on the, on the whole pro-life, pro-choice issue, but I'm trying to work towards the same goal, and that's preventing as many of them as possible. And, and, and that's, I want to make sure that we have that access to health care. I want to make sure that we improve the adoption system. I want to make sure that the, the, that system is properly funded. So uh, ultimately, uh, my goal and the goal of many pro-lifers is exactly the same. We're just having a different way of getting there. So let's pivot then to, uh, this is kind of, let's do two questions at once here. Uh, first, just a little binary. Should we increase or decrease military spending? And then what, um, how are we doing with our veterans right now? What, sh- what should we be doing for them? You know, I think if we increase military spending, we need to increase it in the area of uh, veterans' services and veterans' care. That's an area that I see lacking. We spend uh, a lot of money uh, uh, on the equipment, on defense, but when these individuals get home, uh, care for them is not always uh, there. Uh, and it, it, I just had a conversation before I came here sitting down with a guy who's you know getting services with the VA. And the first question I asked him, I said, how are your services with the VA? Because it, it, some are getting some great services and are being helped. Um, others, uh, I talk to a guy who's sleeping under a tree down in Memorial Park right now. He's a 14-year combat veteran, and he's not getting the care he needs. And uh, I made phone calls, and I, I don't know to this day whether or not he got helped because they won't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I, I, I spent quite a bit of time just trying to get him access to resources and find, you know, find someone to take care of him because it's, you know, it's not just about a place to sleep or, or you know, food to eat. It's about mental health mm-hmm. and, and taking care of our veterans with PTSD issues, or even at the vet's home here in uh, Hot Springs. Uh, there's a per diem for them to live there uh, at, when they retire, or when they uh, there's a per diem for them for nursing home care, but there's no per diem in the middle for uh, assisted living. They have okay. to leave. I mean, why can't we provide a continuum of care for our veterans? I passed a resolution and sent it to our members of Congress when I was in the state legislature about this very issue. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, there, I want to go in and I want to improve these services. I want to cut out some of the red tape because even with those that are getting good services, uh, they talk about the bureaucracy, the paperwork that goes along with it. And I think, once again, you know, going back to what I talked about with lean – I think we can improve these processes. I think we can make it easier for our veterans to access and make sure more of them are getting taken care of and improving that quality of service at the same time. So let's do one more question here. Um, what's Are we doing enough to secure borders? And then a follow-up on that, if I can just throw them all in at once. Um, let's add immigration into the mix of it because it all gets a little bit lumped together. But um, how can we improve the process of immigration into the country? And then what should we be doing with the people who are in this country illegally? So I guess three questions. No, uh, and all very good. So with respect to our borders, you know, we had been up until that, that large migration, which ended up not being as big as what it was talked initially talked about, but up until then, uh, illegal immigration in, into the country was, was down and had been on a downward trend. We have a lot of access to technology and things that have improved border security, and I think that we need to continue to invest in those. Um, but where we really need to improve uh, the, on the immigration side is the processing of it. 
uh, the vast majority of people that are in this country right now illegally came here legally. Those Wait, I'm sorry. Say that again. So uh, many of these undocumented people in this country sure. arrived here legally. The system is not built or equipped to Had a green card, didn't keep a green card? Had a green card, came over here. Had a work visa, uh, didn't keep a work visa. Well, not necessarily had a work visa or didn't keep it, but they come over here. um, I had a former employee who had a, um, ended up uh, getting engaged to a gal from another country who was going to school here. Um, During the whole process, that visa expires. Now she's here illegally. Is that really her fault? I mean, they're trying to get it done. They're they're trying to work through the process. Sure. But you don't have the resources to make it work. And that's part of the, the legal system uh, that, that needs to have more people in it, which means you have to actually fund it if you want it to work. I think that the, there's an opportunity. And this is an area where Democrats and Republicans agree a lot more than you would, uh, you know, that you hear about or see on TV, the need for immigration reform. And I think that there's an opportunity to have have a, a serious sit-down conversation and make these improvements. But once again, we need people that are willing to do that, not use it as a political tool. I think that, that we get to these election cycles and then it becomes a political tool again. But there there are a lot of advantages to to improving this system, including – uh, addressing our social security issue. If we're bringing in um, qualified, experienced workers, uh, many of them are younger, they start contributing to the system. Um, and they're also paying in. They're also helping our retirees. Uh, those, you know, because of now they're, they're paying that social security. And if it hadn't been for the 11 million uh, legal immigrants in the last forget how many years of your know, recent history here, um, Social Security would be in trouble now. Well, as a, a Dusty made a good point last week when we were interviewing. <clears throat> children of, legal obviously, children yeah. of immigrants are the ones currently living the most accurate in the, as, the, as the marketing of the American dream, white right. picket fence, work hard, right. get, get your education, work it to the knuckles, and benefits will be paid to you. Immigrant children are living that American dream right now far more than I think the rest of us because they, you know, they work hard. They didn't have anything when they were younger. They go, they, they go to school. They find an industry that needs, a, needs, needs people. You know, that, it's a thought-out process and a plan. Yep. And for many of them, uh, they know uh, nothing more than the United States. Right. Um, so it would be like taking you or I and kicking us out and sending us to uh, Sudan. And saying, here you go, and, and dropping, dropping you off, good luck, we would be fish out of water because we wouldn't... We'd be picking, we'd be picking someone's fruit and mowing someone's lawn in Sudan, man. If we're lucky. I mean, because right. I mean, we, we wouldn't know anything. We, we would have no connection to it. And that's what, for DACA, I mean, that's what that means for the vast majority of those uh, young adults or children is that they have, they have no recollection or real memory of where they came from. All they know is that, uh, of their family. Well, let's pivot then to just the last end of this question. What should we be doing with the people who are in this country illegally? And well, I don't necessarily mean the former staffers of, you know, with a fiancé type. That's Right. That's, you know, um, I mean actual as it's presented a little in the media immigration. Right. Um, you know, 
I think you have to look at the circumstances, how they got here. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, that goes back to what you had just said, um, and, and then how we need to address it. Um, those that come here illegally, uh, are they seeking asylum? Uh, what is the reason for it? Um, if they've just plain broken the law, then we need to do something about that, and then and they need to go through the proper process. And I, I don't know that they need to be rewarded for that. But like I said, the vast majority of these undocumented people originally came here legally. So we need to do a better job with that process and that, that judicial process of the system to, so, that we're, so that we can avoid these gaps. You largely levels. see this as a funding issue. Uh, it is from the sense that you don't have the people to process it, which we hear you know, when, when, when you watch all these news stories, we don't have the people to handle the load. Right. Um, and that's what we need to look at is, is like a judicial funding process almost. Well, yeah. I mean, they do fall into the legal system right. at that point. So that's where the funding would need to go. And, and just to make sure that we have, uh, you know, enough to handle it. We run into the same thing here in South Dakota with our drug courts and all that stuff. Uh, and, and our mental health, it's a backlog. Mental but, health here is an incredible backlog. Yeah. And that's I mean, something it, I, I, like, I get bitchy about it. I'm sorry to, no matter who is sitting in this chair, it's a, it's a, it's a disaster of sorts. Right. Well, and that's exactly my point is that the, we have to make sure that we have the funding to provide that infrastructure, those resources, those people to make that process go faster. Well, I think uh, that about covers all of our questions here. I know we went a little longer than uh, we thought we would. I appreciate you giving us the extra time. Uh, This is the Dakota Town Hall podcast. I want to thank our guest, Mr. Dan Allers, who is running for U.S. Senate against uh, Senator Mike Rounds. We will be interviewing Mike here soon. You can listen to uh, both episodes. And if you are still undecided, uh, we try to take a very... Uh, middle of the road, um, you know, not, we're not picking a side here. And everyone gets the questions the same kind of way. Individually, you both get different follow-ups based on your answers, certainly. But I think we're trying to give everybody an hour's worth of, here's here's who they are. What do you think of them? So I thank you for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me on and giving me the opportunity. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, thanks again to Elevate Rapid City. Um, they are really trying to do their best on uh, being a part of this process. Better candidates means better economic uh, development, in their opinion. And I agree with them. So I appreciate them for uh, help promoting this show. And uh, thank you all for listening. You can give us a like, give us a rating, give us a share. Um, this, is, uh, this is a pretty new show. Uh, we started it in the primary season of this year and uh this is our first general election season and and hopefully this is going to be something that grows and grows and grows so thanks for coming on thank you all right thanks everybody have a great weekend